Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Welcome back, Joe. Katie, it's great to hear your voice. It is fantastic to be back. So much has happened since our interview with Stacey Abrams back in March, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, we want to thank our listeners for staying with us. While we weren't able to produce our usual episodes, we hope you've enjoyed Presidential Words Matter. Now, we're happy to announce that Joe and I are officially back. And Joe, I know you wanted to tease another announcement. Tease is the operative word, Katie. In the next few weeks, we're going to be announcing an exciting new partnership on a fantastic platform. Can't say any more about that today. We want to keep you in a little bit of suspense, but it's a great group and we are big fans. We know we'll add a lot to this show and hopefully we bring a lot to their table as well. Again, we can't give you the details just yet, but stay tuned for the big announcement in the next few weeks. All right. So, Joe, as I said, a lot's been going on since our last interview with Stacey Abrams back in the first week of March. And I know you've had a lot on your mind. So let's start there. Ever since you and I started doing this podcast together, you had pointed out that unlike most presidents, Donald Trump had gone for a very long time without having to face a crisis that wasn't one of his own making. And obviously that's changed dramatically in the last four months. So talk a little bit about that and what that means going forward. Well, Katie, particularly for people who've been in government, this has been the big concern about Trump all along. He inherited a very strong economy and he did a good job of staying out of the way of it. But I think a lot of us were concerned that when you got to a point where you had a very complicated crisis, whether it was international or domestic, where you needed real leadership, that Donald Trump was either incapable of dealing with it, not interested in dealing with it, or a combination of both. And I think we found in coronavirus, it is a combination of both. He, as a natural-born salesman, thought he could out-talk the virus. He thought he could convince the public that it wasn't a problem, and then therefore it wouldn't be a problem. And that's consistent with Donald Trump. He always makes claims that he can't back up. And for a number of reasons, these things have never really backed up on him, and it's led him to the Oval Office. But this isn't something you could solve by talking or selling. This was a international pandemic that required not only national leadership around the world, but international leadership. It's a position the U.S. has often assumed, whether it be an international finance capital markets crisis, whether it be a crisis of terrorism and security. The rest of the world, I think, by reflex, were expecting Americans to step up and lead. And not only did Donald Trump not lead on the international stage, he didn't lead here at home. So we have a situation where we had 50 different approaches to this, and you can draw a straight line between Republican governors almost and Democratic governors in their approach. There were Republican governors 
wanted to be on the same page as Donald Trump, and they had one way of doing it. You look at Arizona, Texas, Florida, Georgia, who are now in the throes of something we haven't seen in 100 years. Democratic governors took the approach that government needed to lead. They shut down places, New York, California, Michigan, Ohio being probably the exception with Mike DeWine showing real leadership there as a Republican. Coronavirus, among other things, disrupting the world and our country, revealed Donald Trump's limitations as a leader and revealed his limitations as someone who's even interested in government. There was a very telling quote in the New York Times from someone who worked for Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas. And he said that the problem was Donald Trump lost interest in this after the first little burst of him doing his briefings and getting the great ratings. It's one of those situations where a lot of people's concerns have been realized. And if there's any kind of shining light in this at all, is this happened before Election Day. And we have a chance to hold this referendum on Donald Trump and the way he's handled this. The one thing I'd add is there's very few issues that really change the way Americans think. Every campaign we say is the most important in the history of our country. Most years, that's just not true. But we have seminal events in our country that change the way we think and the way we view ourselves, the way we view people in our community. And the last one that happened was 9-11 and the idea that we were vulnerable to foreigners or domestic terrorists hitting us in the homeland. And that restructured our politics for 10 years. Politics was about security. It got George Bush reelected, even with a miserable economy, because people thought, well, at least he's keeping us safe. There hasn't been another attack. Before that, you had to go back, I think, to the 60s with the civil rights movement, the women's rights movements, where really the public's thinking about who we are and how we view our relationship with the government. Government is always something that people think is too big and too inexpensive until they have a crisis. It could be a crisis of a road or a bridge falling apart, or it could be something that impacts all of us. We were afraid for our lives. After 9-11, people were afraid for their lives. They thought someone was going to come and blow up their buildings. People are there now, and they have a very different expectation of government than they did before the coronavirus. And their expectation is at complete odds with Donald Trump's uh, management and presidential style, which is, we don't really do anything here. I, I just make speeches and tweet and we, we cut your taxes and you take care of the rest of it. And it's very difficult for him now to come out of this spiral and reinvent himself in the next hundred days in a way that he's a candidate that can win. We had Doug Sosnick on just before we went uh, on our break and he talked about the political landscape. He does these memos. He just came out with another one in the last few days. And he starts it by saying that Donald Trump is the Austin Powers candidate. He's running around thinking that he's really cool and he's dressed right and he's talking right. He and Austin Powers are the only one who hasn't realized that the entire world has changed and he hasn't. And Donald Trump has little hope of getting reelected being the Donald Trump of 2016. Mm. Well, I'm sure that that will get traction, calling him the, the Austin Powers candidate. And I think you're right in the point, both about how he's dealing with coronavirus and the COVID response, but also as the Black Lives Matter movement takes on a, a national and local 
approach at the same time where it's becoming a touch point of conversation about security, about how citizens are relating to their government at a local level across the country in a way that they didn't necessarily anticipate while simultaneously happening, obviously, at the federal level. But we'll talk about that plenty in the coming months. I want to get your thoughts on one other huge headline that has happened since we last got to talk, and that's dealing with the presidential race. So throughout the Democratic presidential primary process, you consistently said that former Vice President Joe Biden was the candidate to beat. And turns out you were right on that. So like all candidates, Biden, he has his strengths and he has his weaknesses, which we'll talk a lot about also in the coming months. But today, I just want to get your thoughts on Biden and his personal story and the quality of empathy. Yeah, I think, Katie, you put your finger on the biggest difference between President Trump and Joe Biden as a candidate. I tweeted something out the other day and I got a huge response. It's striking how little empathy that the president seems to have for the hundreds of thousands of families that have been hit by this, the millions of families that have been hit by this. He looks at this as a giant inconvenience for himself. And he only views the crisis through, well, how am I doing? How am I, am I getting good ratings on my briefings? And what are people saying about me? He seems obsessed with making sure governors have good things to say about him and that he's doing the best job. He should be up on Mount Rushmore. Biden comes at this, and and that goes with his upbringing. He's a trust fund kid. He entered the world with $200 million and was bankrupt six times. He has always had whatever he wanted. Biden comes at this as the, the real antithesis of Donald Trump. He's a lower middle-class kid from Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, who struggled with his family growing up, made something of himself, was a senator at a very young age, 29, from the state of Delaware. And then suffered a unthinkable tragedy where his wife and and daughter were killed in a car accident. His sons were injured and he was left with bringing up a family. So this is a guy who I think instinctively understands pain and relates to others who are struggling, who have pain, who are dealing with this crisis. And more than that, people see that in Joe Biden. They see how much he struggles when he talks about his son. They see how he he struggles when talking about and listening to people's stories and how that impacts them. I think that's really what the country is looking for right now. So in addition to all the other things we've talked about here, which is what puts Donald Trump on the outside right now, as far as what the government's role is, as far as a national strategy, being completely on the wrong side of history of race relations and demographically just getting killed in the suburbs, particularly among white women in suburbs, which he has to win, and and he's not. You mentioned that I consistently said Biden was the strongest candidate. That was a very lonely place for a a very long time. But I think in some ways that we couldn't even have predicted, he's an even better candidate than we thought. Because this, as, as he says, this is a battle for the soul of the country. And he has one, and I think people think that Donald Trump doesn't. All right, Joe. Well, we'll be talking about that plenty in the coming months, but that's all we've got time for this week. And as always, it's great to hear your voice and your thoughts. Should be an eventful few months. Well, here's what we can tell you is we've been gone for 
the last couple of months, but we'll be here from now to election day with with some really interesting people to talk to. Uh, you might have to listen to Katie and me a little more than you're used to, but we'll be here through election day and beyond. And our listeners can look forward to the announcement of our new partnership next week. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.